first as a slave, then as a prisoner, and now as prime minister. So for 22 years, Joseph was away from home. But in those 22 years, Joseph never forgot about his home. Joseph never forgot about his father. Joseph always yearned for his home. This is evident because, spoiler alert, right? In Genesis 50, he dies, and he says, after he dies, carry his, his dead bones from Egypt, carry it back to his home country of Canaan. Joseph always yearned for his home. Jacob always yearned for his household. Joseph, for the past 22 years in Egypt, went through a lot, right? He was a slave, he was imprisoned, and he was all alone. No one was there for him. But what sustained him was a yearning for home. I could kind of relate to Joseph in that when I was a child, when I first came into the U.S., I was, what, six when I came to the U.S.? And I lived here for three years, and I went back to Korea. But in those time period between six and nine years old for me, for some reason, Northern Virginia was, was ingrained in my mind as home. I lived all over the place since I was nine. I lived in Korea, I lived in Indiana, I lived in Philadelphia, I lived in Chicago, I lived in Jersey. I was in the Korean army for crying out loud. But in all those times, and no matter where I was, in my mind, Northern Virginia was my home, and I would do whatever it takes to come back here. For me, in my mind, there wasn't an option. I would always come back here. That's what I knew. It was similar to Joseph. Home never left him. Right? And the yearning for home is especially more real when you are suffering. Like we said, Joseph suffered tremendously. But think about it is, the more you suffer, the more you long for your home. It's the craziest thing. And the best example that I can give you is Korean Army, right? I was in basic boot camp in Korean Army, right? I was 26, right? American as apple pie, and not really, but Americanized. And the moment you, you know, you, you, go to the, you go to this field where all the new enlisted guys come, and they take you, and they say bye to your parents and your loved ones in the field, and they, they take you out of the field. And the moment they take you out of the field, the, there's a big black gate behind you that closes. The moment that thing closes, the first thing that comes out of the instructor's mouths are, you sons of dogs, right? From a guy who's American as apple pie, no one really called me a sons of dogs before, right? And so from that moment on, it was really hard. But I remember, in basic training, I got a letter from my mom, and I bawled. I bawled. Because life in basic training was so hard. Imagine what Joseph was feeling when he was a slave and when he was in prison. The longing for home. 
Let's talk about Jacob's, let's talk about Jacob's perspective, his father. For Jacob's perspective, Joseph was one of the loves of his life. He had two loves of his life. One was Joseph's mother, Rachel, and the second was Joseph himself. And, Joseph, and Jacob lost Rachel because Rachel died years before Joseph left town. He lost one love of his life, and all the love that he had for her, he poured out on Joseph. And he now thought, 22 years before, he thought that Joseph was dead. Two people that he loved the most died. And especially his son died. And people say, you will, ne people say, you will ne never get over, parents never get over the death of their children. In Korea, I think they say there's a word for people who love their spouses, and there's a word to describe people who lost their parents. Right? Orphan is the people who lost their parents. Widow widowers are the people who lost their spouses. In Korean, they say there is no word for people who lost their children. Because that tragedy is so heartbreaking. There are no words to describe what that word to convey the meaning of that pain. I remember watching 60 Minutes after, in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. Remember Sandy Hook in Connecticut? There's a guy who shot these little children. I remember you know, seeing a 60 Minutes interview with one of the parents of the kids who died of Sandy Hook. And the parents said, you know, I think in life, there are seasons of life. There is spring, summer season where everything is hopeful and bright and new. And there's also a seasons of autumn and winter where things are bleak, cold, and dead. She said, the moment that my child died, I know that I will, there will never be spring and summer for me here in this world. That my life will always be autumn and winter. It broke my heart. Jacob experienced that. He never got over it. He thought that his son was dead. And now these two guys, the son who yearned for his father's home for 22 years, and a guy who has lost his son, they met at Goshen today. Jake, Joseph got off his chariot, ran to his father. He fell on his neck, which means he embraced his father by the neck and started weeping for a while. And Joseph, when Jacob looked at his son, he said, now I can die because I know that you are alive. I'm tearing up right now. It's a reunion between a lost son and a grieving father. That's what's happening today. But this picture of this reunion, I think it's a perfect picture of what the gospel is. I think this picture of reunion between Joseph and Jacob is a foreshadowing image 
of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's more than saying that you are a horrible person, but Jesus died for you on the cross to forgive you. That is true. That is certainly true. But Jesus describes the gospel in a more complex way. Jesus describes the gospel as a reunion between a lost son and a yearning father. How do we know? The parable of the, par- the, parable of the prodigal son, or another way to say it, the parable of the lost son, is Jesus' description of what the gospel is. And as you know, for those of you who grew up in the church, I think you've, you've done the parable of the lost, lost son skit back in your children's ministry days and your youth group days, right? Am I right? You know, lifelong SPCers, you've done it, right? Right? I'm pretty sure for those of you who grew up with it, you guys did it too. The parable of the lost son. It's such a popular parable to, to do, do because that's the message of the gospel in a nutshell, what Jesus came to do is to reunite lost sons to a loving father. That's what the gospel is. What does the parable of the lost son? Let's look at the elements of this parable. We have a son of a very prominent man who wanted to live independently from his father. Even though the father was loving to him and provided everything that the son needed, the second son said, I want to go my own way. And he leaves the father to pursue his own way. But as soon as he leaves the father's household with the father's gifts, what happens to the kid? He starts to deteriorate, right? First, his morals started to deteriorate. But he started to live wild. Right? He lived, he lived and, and wild living means immoral lifestyle. Once he departed from the father, he started to deteriorate morally. After he started deteriorating morally, he started to deteriorate physically. Because after he lost all his money, he became a poor beggar. Who, needed, who started working at a pig pen and, and ate the food that the pigs ate. So there is a deterioration of his morals. There's a deterioration of his physical condition. It's, once he leaves the father's household, there's a deterioration. Then the son comes, comes to his senses and says, I need to go back to my father. When he go back, goes back to his father, The son imagines the father being displeased with him because the son declared independence and took half his money and took half the father's money. The son thought the father would not welcome him. But on the contrary, when the father looked at the son coming to his house, he runs after his son, embraces him, like, Joseph, like, Jacob embraced Joseph, like Jacob embraced Joseph. He cries with the son, welcomes him, gives him the best robe of the house, and throws an amazing party. 
That's Jesus' description of what the gospel is. Let's, talk, they, they, let's take these elements of the gospel step by step. Number one, the gospel is people who are, who are, who are designed by God, who belong to God, who cannot live apart from God, declare their independence from him. They declare their independence. They say, I want to go my own way. That's the heart of the re- Adam's rebellion. I want to go my own way. Even though they want to go their own way, even though all of us want to go our own, go, go our own way, they're still, even though we want to set our life apart from God, they're still an integral part of us that still yearns for God. It's weird. Even though consciously we, we don't want anything to do with God, yet internally we still yearn for the things of God. For example, C.S. Lewis said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they, would know that they do want and want accurately something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis is saying, even though we claim ourselves to be reasonable independent people, there is a desire, a longing that is deep within us that nothing can satisfy in this world but God himself. And that is so evident in all of life. I was listening to an interview with a stand-up comedian, and he said, when I was younger, I think he was middle class, but he got a scholarship to a really elite private school. And he looked at his elite classmates whose parents had yachts and three or four homes. And he said, when I was a kid, I wanted that. But now he's super successful. He has like nine supercars. He has all the money in the world. And he said, after getting that, all he felt was, meh. When he was a kid, he thought the yachts and the second homes he wanted, that was what, what was worth living for. But after being in the financial position where he can afford it, all that he feels was, meh. Lewis is saying, everything in life is like that. I think you pour expectation on people in jobs or houses or things. You pour out this eternal expectation on those things. But those expectations that you pour out on those people and things cannot possibly give you what you think they think they ought to give you. I told my daughter this all the time. She says, I want to be in love, she says. And I said, and I, I get to be more nice about this. I said, baby, so you're saying you think this 14-year-old boy, right, whose voice kind of changed like this, right? You think the 14-year-old boy 
can satisfy the deepest feelings that you have. Guys have said, Mom, can I get a ride to the mall? <laughs> the guy who had a curfew, who has a curfew, the guys who have to be told to stop playing video games, that guy is the answer to your heart's deepest longing? She says, you're right, Dad. You laugh. But that's the expectation that all of us pours out to anything and everything in this world. Dudes who pour out their eternal significance to a, to a woman at Coffee Meets Bagel Lab. <gasps> she's Korean and Christian and pretty. Oh, she's my soulmate. Really? Coffee Meets Bagel is such a good app. I wish all of you bliss in marriage and stuff. Come on, let's be real. We have eternal longings. I had a happy hour the other day with 20-something-year-old paralegals. One of them, literally, same age as my son, right? So I was like talking with them, and they love talking to me because I, I guess I'm, they're projecting their daddy issues on me or something, right? And, and, I, and I love talking to them. And I said, you know, I'm a pastor. And they go, are you kidding me? They can't believe it. Then again, I got to change the way I live my life at work. Because if they surprise the fact that I'm a pastor, it's something, I'm doing something wrong. Anyway, they're surprised. And yet, they kind of mock it in a joking way. Because that joking is based on their idea that religion and Christianity is ridiculous. And yet, they talk about how unjust the world is, how unfair capitalism is, how, how, or how they want a better just system in this world. They talk about it as ad nauseum. It's painful listening to them, right? Really? Thank God I'm a Christian. So they mock Christianity, and they yearn for a just world. I almost told them, the world that you're looking for will never come. But I wasn't that mean. These young people have a desire for a perfect world. And that desire for a perfect world is for God. We think that we can live away from God, and yet we have these yearnings for him. It's weird. That's the first element of being a prodigal. You live away from God, and yet you still thirst for him. Second thing that happens to you is when you depart from the Father's presence, you start to morally and physically deteriorate. The more you live away from God, you start to deteriorate morally and physically. And that's true. I was, listening, I was reading the news last month. There was a CEO of a company, great guy. He, his salary was a million dollars a year, but he cut his salary to 70,000 so that every one of his employees can make 70,000. True socialist you know, system. He cut his salary, he made a million dollars, but cut his salary to 70,000 so that every one of his employees can make $70,000. Fox News will have a heart attack if he listens to this, right? What a great guy. But then it came out, 12 women were reporting allegations of abuse, sexual harassment, 
violence against them. How do you explain this? How do you explain a guy who's who cut his salary so that everyone can make the same amount of money and yet at the same time abuse 12 women? How do you explain this? That's the example of deterioration. His sacrifice of his money for the sake of his worker, that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Let's not diminish that, the significance of that. That's a beautiful thing, right? But his, his alleged abuse of these women are also a reality of his life. There's both beauty and deterioration. That's every human being. Look, there's a New York, former New York State prosecutor who did more, who, who, are, who are on the front lines of women's rights. He loved to, he loved to, to protect women, passed laws, prosecuted crimes against women. He was in the forefront of women's support, and yet it was alleged that he harassed his secretary. There is beauty in what he did, but there's also deterioration. And that is every single one of us here. There are things that you do are great. I'm so proud. Whenever I, when, when I talk to you, I often say how proud I am of you guys. And I genuinely mean it because what you sometimes, who you are and what you are and what you do, is so great. It's great. But you can't escape the deterioration of your inner soul. The judgments, the gossips, the criticisms, the pornography, the, I don't know, the selfishness, the arguments, the insanity, all these things are evidence of your inner deterioration. Yes, there's a part of you that retains the image of God and that is beautiful and awesome. But there's also a reality in you that is ugly and dark because you're away from the Father. That's the second element of being a far away from, being a prodigal means you're far and yet you, and you are deteriorating. Every day of your life, you experience a deterioration. The third element is, by the grace of God, if God loves you, you come into your senses and you start to realize your need to go back to God in order to be saved. The grace of God is that God, through the Holy Spirit, making you come to your senses so that you will know that you need him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Jesus Christ is a savior of the world. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be savior of the world? It means this. It means since the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, God has opened his invitation to salvation to everyone in the world. Before Jesus, salvation was limited to the nation of Israel. But after the work of Christ, God in God's Rips the curtains and he invites everyone 
to himself. He's inviting everyone to himself since the, since the coming of Christ. There's a book that I'm reading by this uh, Swiss physician psychologist, Christian reformed physician psychologist named Paul Chernay. And his job was, he's a medical doctor, and yet he also not only treats people's physical ailments, but also treats them spiritually. It's an amazing book. And what Trené is saying is this in that book. He says, God is inviting everyone to have a dialogue with him. Whether you're a Christian or not, God is calling everyone to have a dialogue with him. God uses everything to bring you to a dialogue with him. He uses troubles of the world. He uses beauty of the world. He uses, you know, pain in the world. He uses your sin. He uses every part of your life to call to, so, so that you will be open to have a dialogue with him. Even now, even though you may ignore him, he's calling you to have a dialogue with him. He is. One of my favorite Joe Reyes' story, Joe Reyes is here, so I'm not gossiping if he's right in front of me, was he was making pizza a couple of, couple of months ago, and he realizes all the complex ingredients going into pizza that all pointed to the glory of God. He was praising God for his pizza when he was making pizza. I want to taste that pizza, right? Even the complexity of a pizza, Joe says, it's God's calling Joe to have a deep communion with him. He uses everything in your life to have a conversation so that you will go to him. That's what he, he's inviting you to go to him through the, all the different areas of your life. Whether it is a troubled marriage or whether it is a troubled single people. I don't know what you single people have troubles for. Whether it is a problem in your work. Maybe it is an unreasonable client. Maybe it is a client that's chewing you out. By the way, I was chewed out in a town hall. I'll talk about that later. Very traumatic. Whatever it is, he is calling you to have a dialogue with him. Every day he is calling you to have a dialogue with him. The grace of God is that you recognize his call. And you heed his call and you open your life to him. He wants you to come to your senses and knows how much you need him. And how you are a mess without him. He does that through the Holy Spirit. Shia LaBeouf. I'm in a big Shia LaBeouf kick these days. Shia LaBeouf that I preached about a couple of weeks ago. Man, that guy. He was insane. His life was exploding, addicted to drugs. Some of the things that he's done, I can't even preach about it here. They're so horrible. Read about what he's allegedly done. I can't even preach about it because it's so horrible what, he's alleged, what he has alleged to have done. He is, in a, his life was sparring out of control. No one was calling him for work. The only call that he got was to play the role of a Franciscan priest. So as a research, he goes to a seminary with monks and nuns. And he starts living with the monks and nuns to research this role. 
he was exposed to the community of faith, to worship, to kindness, the Bible. When he does that, when he, when he found God through it, and when he, after he found God, he starts looking at the way he used to live and the, what he's realizing now, and he realizes how crazy destructive he actually was. He said, before I tried to go to, when I was addicted to drugs and alcohol, I tried to go to therapy. And my therapist says, maybe your, all your issues is because you had a traumatic childhood. That's, what, that's how the world tells you. If you're messed up, they say you're messed up because you had a traumatic childhood. But what Shia LaBeouf realized was, it's not his traumatic childhood that messed him up. He says he was always an ego-driven person. His ego, his self-centered focus is the one that led his life into insanity. But now in God, he says he doesn't want to live for himself anymore. And that understanding of not wanting to live for himself saved him from insanity. That's what God does. He invites you to have a dialogue with him so that you will be saved, so that you will be healed, so the deterioration will stop, so that the insanity will stop. He is inviting you to himself. When you go to God, what does he do? He doesn't shake his head. He doesn't, he's not unforgiving. He gives you, he welcomes you, and he gives you what is best, which is himself. That's what Shia Lovov couldn't get over, and that's what Paul couldn't get over. This God that he persecuted, this God that he hated, Paul says, accepts him and gives himself to him. You know what I mean? The prodigal son's father gave the prodigal son the best robe, throws a great party, welcomes him. God does this. God does this to you. When you come to your senses and go to him, he will pour out his best, which is his presence to you. It's the craziest of things. Even though you completely messed up your life and you completely messed up your marriage, when you go to him, he welcomes you and he blesses you with his presence. And when, you, when he blesses you with your presence, what happens to you is your mind becomes, starts to change. What you love starts to change. Your importance, starts, everything that you thought was important, that starts to change. That's what happens to you when you're reunited with the Father. The question is, my dear friends, are you united with the Father? How do you know that you're united with the Father? Are you experiencing his grace as a regular basis? Because the God, the people that God has saved continues to dwell in his house. 
Another way, for, another way to describe salvation is a person who's saved is a person who's part of God's household. And being hard part of God's household means God dwells with you. If you're a member of my household, that means you live with me. That's a legal definition, right? You live with me if you're in my household. You know, you know, my love for things. You know my love for Korean, like, under t-shirts. The sangbangor, the Korean, like, thick Korean undershirt. I love those things. My daughter's disturbed by the way that I wear those things, but, you know. And you will know what I love, and you'll know, you'll know my life. I'm not this all the time, right? You know my love for 20-year-old shorts that I wear all the time. Too much information? But you get the too much information when you dwell with me. When I personally dwell with you, when you personally dwell with me, you will know me. And that's the benefit of being saved. means you are now existing in a sphere where God personally dwells with you. And when God personally dwells with you, he will pour out himself to you on a regular basis. The reason why fellowshipping with him is so important is that you're confirmed. When you walk with him through prayer and through the reading of the word, you, you get to dwell in his household. When you dwell within his, when you're in his household, he does change you. Primarily, he changes your perspective of things. He does give you wisdom that you never had, love that you never had, kindness that you never had, hope that you never had. He gives you these things, crazy, that will sustain you on a day-to-day basis. Look, last week, Pastor Wujin's sermon, what, the word that got to me last week when he was preaching was people who think Christianity is what? What did he say? Same old, same old, same, like, what, 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 I guess it so bothered me that I forgot about it. People who think, you know, Christianity is like this same old, same old thing. This uneventful kind of blah thing. It's not. When you dwell within God's household, when he personally dwells with you, Oh my gosh, he reveals himself to you. He reveals who you are to you. He reveals the world to you. And when that happens, oh boy, you have the power and the wisdom to live every day. Christianity for me is anything but boring, anything but the same. It's vitality, it's new, it is power. And I experience this because I get to dwell in God's household every day. Well, this week, last week, it was hard, yo. Like two weeks ago, I think my, I had a really good time preparing for the sermon. I had a really good, t- good time. I think my sermon was pretty on point. And when those, th- when those things happen, part of, my, part of me thinks, uh-oh, here comes the temptation. When I'm blessed by God this way, Deborah's not going to leave me alone. And you're right. I had a rough week this week. And God tested the bounds of my Limit as a lawyer, my limit as a husband, my limit as a father, all in one week. Boy, that was a hard week. Work-wise, we had a town hall meeting with one of my main clients. My partner was on the call. All the VP of HR was on the other call. And all their employees on the call, right? Like 40 people on the call. 
and I was giving my presentation like this, like a boss. And then suddenly, all these employees start to chew me out. For 30 minutes, they chewed me out. My partner didn't say anything. I was being crucified for 30 minutes by 40 people. Has that ever happened to you? Do you know what that's like? Being publicly criticized and chewed out and your boss doesn't do anything? Not fun. Oh, there's a thinking that I had about my wife that I couldn't shake. And it just affected my view of her this week. You had one of those? There's a perception of your spouse that you have in your mind that you cannot shake. The colors, the way you treat her this week. That happened to me. Then my daughter the other day confesses how alone she feels. I go, oh my gosh. And you feel powerless because she's sad. And you want to make it better, but you can't. That was my Monday through Saturday. How was your week? You see, guys, you're pastor. I'm not in my home every day just reading the Bible and reading books and looking at CNN. That's not what I'm doing. I'm in the trenches with you. I'm in the trenches with you. And the only thing that sustained me in this last week was I got to dwell with God. And that dwelling with him gave me a sense of clarity, gave me a, a wisdom, a kindness that I need to endure these various things that I, that I faced. I got chewed out on Friday. I did. But by Friday night, as I was preparing the sermon at 1 a.m. in the morning, I ended that day praising the Lord for being chewed out. Weird. Praise God for me being chewed out. And I genuinely meant it. Because that's what happens to you when you dwell within the presence of God. Salvation is not this religious what, like, claim that you kind of agree with. A person that's being saved by God as are a part of his household, and you're, <clears throat> and you're called to dwell within his household all the days of your life. And when you dwell within his household all the days of your life, he will give you the love that you never thought you had, the kindness that you never thought you had, the courage that you never thought you had, the power to overcome sins that you never thought you had. He gives you the things that you never thought you had as you walk with him. That's my experience. That's my experience. I can tell you, that's my experience living this Christian life. And I'm not experiencing it just because I'm a great person, but because I get to walk with the Father, and so can you.
Side note, parents, what I realized about my having conversation with my daughter is this. When your children are little, you can protect them from pain. When they're babies, if they're hungry, you give them food, right? When they're older, when they're scared of the light, give them a light light. You can protect them what they're afraid of. But as they grow older, you will start to realize how, li how limited you are in terms of shielding pain from your children's lives. You can't shield your children from being bullied. You can't shield your children from not being accepted by society. You can't shield your children from having their heart broken. You can't shield your children from being, feeling like they're a failure. You can't. Parents of daughters, God bless them, but 13, 14, come talk to me. The more they grow, the more you understand how limited you are to protect them. You can't protect them. The only thing that you can do for them is to provide wise, loving counsel to them. And the only way that you can provide love, wise, loving counsel to them is if God gives it to you on a day-to-day -day basis. You say, if I take my children to a church that has a better children's program, then my children will be raised in the faith. Really? Take your children to a Sunday school program where they learn how to color the picture of Noah and Moses. That's going to give them faith? It's not. Faith will come through you. And the only way that you can be an instrument of faith to your children is not yelling at them to read the Bible, although it's important, but it's for your children to detect the reality of God in you. The only way that God will use you to, to, to give genuine faith to your children is if your children can detect the genuineness of God in you. And you can only get that when you dwell with him. You understand? That is so, why it's so important for you to dwell with God quickly. So that's the reunion that happened with Joseph and Jacob. The reunion symbolizes the gospel. Quickly, two minutes. After Joseph and Jacob reunites, Jake, Joseph tells his brothers, when the Pharaoh asks you what your occupation is, you tell them that you're shepherds, okay? That's weird. I didn't understand why they would, he would do that. Didn't Pharaoh, you know, promise Goshen to them? But it's weird. So Joseph so after he tells his brothers, when the Pharaoh asks you, tell, your tell them your shepherd. Tell them your shepherds. Why did Joseph do this? Two reasons. Number one, 70 people are now coming to Egypt. Jacob, 70 people of Jacob's household come to Egypt. Because Joseph is the second most powerful person in the land, and now Jacob, now Joseph has 70 people of his family members. The Pharaoh could think Joseph could be tempted to do a power play, appoint his brothers in key seats of power. So Pharaoh could misunderstand 
can be, you know, can worry that Joseph is making a power play by having all his family members near him. That's number one. To ease Pharaoh's concern, he tells them, we're just shepherds. We're just simple shepherds. We don't want any power. We're just simple shepherds. But the second reason why Joseph tells his brothers to tell king, the king that you're shepherds is because the Egyptians had a very low view of shepherds, especially foreign shepherds. So by telling the Egyptians that they're foreign shepherds, Joseph is preventing them from marrying Egyptians because Egyptians will not marry someone who are lower class than them. Egyptians view foreign shepherds as a class below them. And therefore, when Joseph's family declared themselves to be shepherds, Egyptians will see the, she- see the brothers as people who are lower social class so that they're not going to be tempted to mingle with Joseph's family. Joseph did this because he wanted to keep separate his family, who are the people of God, separate them from the pagan Egyptians. You understand? Joseph viewed his family as a chosen people of God. And as a chosen people of God, it is inappropriate for them to mingle with the idolaters of, of Egypt. Look, Goshen was perhaps the wealthiest part of Egypt, which was the wealthiest country during that time. Right? Goshen was the wealthiest county in the wealthiest country in all the world. Northern Virginia, Fairfax County, Loudoun County, Montgomery County, Arlington County are the four wealthiest counties in America who is the wealthiest country in the world. So you all are living in Goshen right now. You understand? You have the highest medium salary than anyone in the world. You're living in Goshen. Some of you have two homes. Like you're the Donald Trump of Northern Virginia. I want to be like you. The call is to be shepherds in this Goshen called Northern Virginia by doing well your job, right? Live hard, live, live well, but never forget that your primary identity is the people of God. You are God's people in this land of Goshen. Do you understand? You are living in the wealthiest county in the world. You have jobs that pay more money than most of the places in the world. But do not let the worldly philosophy infiltrate you. Know yourself primarily not as a people who belong to this county, but people who belong to God. Therefore, you are called to live differently than the people of Goshen. You're called to dwell regularly with the people of God, which is our church. You are called to dwell with God himself on a regular basis. People right now, look, I st- sorry, Joe, but I st- stopped at Starbucks this morning with my daughter. I'll never do that again, Joe. But I stopped by Starbucks this morning with my daughter because I needed caffeine. 
And there were tons of people just hanging out, enjoying their Sunday at Starbucks. They are the residents of Goshen. Because there's no room for God in their lives. You're different. You come here because you belong to the people of God. And your identity in this world is to live as people of God. As we publicly gather to worship him. And as you individually walk with him on a regular basis. Live differently. Let's pray.